Give it a second. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and today I'm joined by Mr. David Kirshner, the curator of the Sydney Zoo. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I'm actually curator of reptiles rather than the whole zoo, just in case someone at work is listening to this. <laughs> I don't want to cra- claim too much credit for the whole zoo. <laughs> yes, yeah, probably a smart decision. So, <laughs> yes. so uh, you want to go over your uh, career, how you first like got into reptiles, and uh, kind of your career path to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've got one of the most convoluted career paths of uh, of anyone that I know. In fact, a, a few years ago, uh, we have Science Week here in Australia, and I was asked to give a talk along with some other scientists about our career paths. And, and I just had this slide that was this kind of convoluted noodle, it looked like the flying spaghetti monster, and was trying to convey to people that, especially students, that not to expect a linear career path that you can just kind of follow it where it goes and quite often it's a lot of fun and you'll end up somewhere surprising so you can probably tell by my accent that i i'm, a, I'm an australian i grew up in canada and i came here as a student uh, so so as a kid like most people listen to this podcast i imagine i was absolutely besotted with reptiles i was fascinated with all animals but i particularly loved reptiles but I grew up in a, a part of Canada, right in the central part of Canada, where you just don't get very many reptiles. They're, the whole province that I grew up in, Manitoba, has eight species of reptile. So everything I kept when I was a kid was, or almost everything I kept as a kid was uh, exotic. But I had a particular fascination with crocodilians, alligators and crocodiles. I kept caimans when I was a kid. I'm old enough to remember a time when you used to be able to buy caimans in pet stores or even in the department store. Kmart would have them in the pets pet section. You can buy baby caimans for a couple of dollars. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I kind of started off with that sort of interest. And I was always interested in art as well, so drawing and painting animals. That was also a fascination. And I, if you'd met me at, at the age of five and found out what I do now, you wouldn't be surprised at all. <laughs> and even most of my career, all the little, the little convoluted things that I did, they kind of fit in with my interests and who I was as a, as a kid. So when I was uh, at university, I studied zoology, and I decided that I wanted to get out of Winnipeg and go someplace else. And the way to do that, I was told, was to do well at university and try to get scholarships so I could do my postgraduate studies somewhere else. So I concentrated pretty hard. I was a, an appalling student in high school, but in university, I really turned it on just so I could, you know, I wanted to get ahead. And so I, I managed to get a scholarship that took me to Australia, where I, uh, I did my doctorate on saltwater crocodiles. So Gordon Grigg, uh, Professor Gordon Grigg, he was at the University of Sydney at the time. Uh, and he was, uh, I, I sent letters to, this is before email, I sent letters to quite a number of different people that were doing research on alligators and crocodiles. And Gordon was the first person to respond. And he said to me mm-hmm. that if I was able to get some sort of funding for myself, i.e. a scholarship, that he would provide funding for my research by way of you know, a spot in his lab and um, research grant funding and everything else. And he would be happy to take me on as a grad student. So I was then determined that I was going to go to Australia. And uh, so, so 
when I finished university, when I finished my undergrad degree, I, I came to Australia. And it took me probably about a month of, of living here. And I decided this is probably where I was going to live for the rest of my life. And people kept saying, well, one day you're going you're gonna to feel homesick in a few months and you'll change your mind. But uh, that never really happened. And also, I think, I think, um, I think Canadians in particular find it easy to adapt to Australia and vice versa, because they're really similar countries in that part of the Commonwealth. You've got a really small population in a really big country with a lot of wild, wildlife, a lot of, or a lot of wilderness, I should say. So you know, vast, vast amounts of space with a quite a small population. So I always say to people that Australia is where. Canada keeps its beaches, and Canada is where Australia keeps its snow. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I did my did my PhD on saltwater crocodiles. Had some crazy times, which we can talk about in a while. <laughs> um, catching crocodiles and and yeah, all sorts of really interesting things. And then and then when I finished, I kind of decided I was going to get out of academia and get into zoo work. And so I got a job at one of the zoos in Sydney called Taronga Zoo and worked there for a while. And then I, I left there and ended up um, working as a wildlife illustrator, drawing and painting wildlife for about 14 years. There's a kind of a long story behind that. And then I ended up going back into the zoo world, originally doing interpretive graphics. So this is the, all the videos and signage and everything with information on the animals. Which is something I'm really interested in doing as well, and then and then uh, I eventually I got this opportunity to be involved in a, a brand new zoo called Sydney Zoo, which was just being built, and I was employee number six. We're now up to about 300 and something employees, and I was involved in the, the actual planning and design of the reptile house. So I got to choose a species list, design the habitats oversee the, the build of it, uh, hire, hire zookeepers, do all the graphics, you know, got involved in some of the backgrounds as well on in the actual habitats. And so it's been a really interesting ride. That's a really, really abridged version of my, my life so far. <laughs> yeah, so uh, going back to your childhood in Canada, you mentioned it was uh, in Manitoba. Is that the same province that those uh, big garters Gutter snake uh, uh, hibernaculum migrations yeah, are at. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's a funny story behind that because when I was living in Canada, my grandfather used to buy and sell cattle. And he would always tell me that when he was out driving from farm to farm, that he'd see garter snakes on the road. And he, you know, so I kept on asking if I can go with him. And whenever I'd go with him, I'd spend an entire day sitting in the car, staring at the road, hoping to see a garter snake and never saw a single garter snake. And we talked to, to farmers and the farmers would say, you should have been here last week. There were so many snakes in the road that it, it was just slick with them and the cars were sliding. And I just thought they were exaggerating. And it wasn't until I was a fair bit older that I realized that two things. One, they're telling the truth because that's what it gets like, or that's what it used to get like around the hibernacula. They now, they now have little fences to get the snakes to go under the road. But no one ever, not a single one of them ever said, oh, it only happens at this time of year. It just seemed this random, they never, said anything about it. And when I got older, uh, I discovered that there were these snake dens. But this is, again, this is before the internet and uh, before Google Maps or anything else. 
And I always thought it was much further from Winnipeg than it was. So I never visited it, the, the, the snake dens when I was actually living in Canada. And it wasn't until I was living in Australia and back in Canada visiting my family. I was with a friend and I said, uh, they said, why don't we go to the snake dens? And I said, but aren't they far away? And they said, no, it's about an hour out of Winnipeg. <laughs> and so we just drove up there. And now whenever I'm in Canada at that time of year, I go back to the snake dens. So I've been there probably about a dozen times. Are, uh, are the snakes really as dense as they appear in like all the nature documentaries? It is, it is something that you have to see. It is, if you're into reptiles, it is something that you have to see because it, you'll never see that many snakes in one spot in your life. And it's not just seeing them, it's hearing them. It's the sound of all these snakes crawling over each other. It sounds like running water. There's this steady hiss. And you hear it as you as you're walking up. You, you hear this like that, and then you see this kind of gathering of snakes. There'll be a few thousand snakes, and they're just crawling over each other. And it's, that's just the sound of snakes crawling on snakes. And while you're standing there, you'll see all sorts of weird things happening around you. You'll see you see mating balls. You'll see males trying to mate with dead snakes. <laughs> you'll see you'll see snakes chasing a female and the female will go up a tree and they'll have this kind of mating ball forming as they're going up the tree and then the whole thing kind of flops down breaks up and then gets back together and just continues to flow down through the grass there's all sorts of crows and ravens around and they have developed a habit where there's this abundance of food so they don't need need to eat the whole snake so what they do is they just do a, a very very precise peck to the head to kill the snake they flip the snake over and then they remove five or six belly scales to get the liver and they know exactly where to go. So you'll see these snakes lying there that, that look totally fine. And then you flip them over and they've just got this little kind of opening with their liver missing, huh. which is why there's dead snakes. And, and if it's a female snake, the males will still try to mate with them. <laughs> snakes so abundant, the crows learn how to become veterinarians for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you'll also see things like it's a, it's a because there's so many snakes. If you want if you want to see a melanistic garter snake, if you stand there long enough, you'll find one. I, That's... I went there with my daughter one year, and I said uh, she was probably I think she was eight at the time, and I had my camera with me. And she she's grown up in Australia. This is my biological daughter. It's a long story there, but she um her first reaction was you know are they venomous and i said no they're completely harmless you can pick them up and so she was really excited by that and so she was picking these things up and she was looking at them and uh and i said find me a really red one because they they're red-sided gar snakes and they vary into how much red they have and she wandered off and she came back and i've, I've got a, a photograph of this snake on my facebook page and it was just the most spectacularly red uh red-sided garter snake that she'd found and we found a melanistic one as well that's insane. This, this population is so dense. You just have sand around long enough, you just find a naturally occurring color yeah. morph. Yeah. Now, regarding the density of the population, what you're seeing is this part of Manitoba has limestone around a meter beneath the surface of the soil. It used to be a lake bed. So uh, this is a, there was an inland sea called Lake Agassiz, and this was kind of like the near one of the shores. And so you've got this fossilized lake bed. Now that what that means is that in winter, when everything freezes, because it gets to 40 below in, yeah. in Manitoba. So if the snakes don't get below that limestone, they'll freeze to death. 
So what they have to do is they have to find a spot where there's a natural limestone sinkhole, so there would be a crack or a, some sort of break in the limestone. Now there aren't that many of those, so where there is one, the snakes have been going there tens of thousand years, tens of thousands of years from all around the area to the same spot. That's amazing that basically the, these really small concentrated places that just support them for half the year, they all yeah. know exactly where it is every exactly. generation for so long. Yeah. yeah. And they go, they go down and what happens in spring is uh, there's, so it, there's a big public den where it's become an ecotourism thing. Uh, and it's fantastic. They've got signage and uh, tour guides, and various other things. And school groups go there, which I think is brilliant because it gets people used to snakes. Yeah. And at that one, there's a giant central den where there's several different entrances and the entrances are some of them face east, some of them face west, and some of them face north. So they, the snow melts at different rates. So the ones that are facing a little bit further south tend to warm up faster. So the snakes that are denning near there will be emerging. So you might have one part of the den where it's just hopping, there's just snakes everywhere. And then you'll go to another one of these entrances and it'll be really quiet. And it's two weeks later, that one will be really emerging and will be at its peak. So it, it extends the time that you can go to see the snakes because you really want to see them at their peak. There's a hmm. period in the middle where they're just, where that's when you see just thousands of snakes at once. Um, so, you, so as you're walking around, you'll, you'll, you'll see different numbers of snakes in each area. And the males come out first, they wait around for the females. The females are a bit slower because they're usually a bit, well, they're larger and they're deeper underground. And, and they when they come up, they get mobbed by the males. Yeah. So uh, you got your uh, got a grad school and got to go to Australia, and you said your research was with uh, uh, saltwater crocodiles. Do you want to go yeah. over uh, what that research was about? Okay. So what I what I researched was uh, buoyancy control and aquatic locomotion. So essentially, what I was looking at was well, number one, uh, the question was, do they have good control over their buoyancy? We can guess that they do because you watch them un underwater and they just move really beautifully. You know, they don't, they're not struggling to come up for air and they're not struggling to go down again. And also just look, you know, looking at the swimming motions and, and what techniques they use for steering and, and everything else. People had done studies on buoyancy control in turtles, freshwater turtles, and they, they looked at uh, sea snakes as well, but no one had ever looked at a crocodilian. And the crocodilian to me was the most obvious one to look at because they are so magnificent underwater. You can get a, a massive 500 kilogram saltwater crocodile and it'll be moving along under the surface, not making a ripple. And, and it's very effortless for them. So, so what I was looking at, I was working with small crocodiles because big crocodiles logistically are really tricky to, to work with. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, and so I was, and so that, so, and I was, uh, and most of my work was lab-based and looking at, yeah, and looking at how they control their buoyancy, how much control they have over the buoyancy, and what happens when you try to trick them? What happens if you add, add, add a little bit of weight to them? Do they compensate? And it turns out they've got fantastic control over the buoyancy. It's really quite, quite interesting. Uh, would one of those uh, tools for their buoyancy be their uh, diaphragmaticus uh, muscle and ligament complexes? 
Well, the, the, the diaphragmaticus muscle is, uh, what makes it interesting is that the liver gets pulled back. So for anyone that's listening that's not familiar with that muscle, essentially reptiles don't have a diaphragm. So they have this pair of muscles called diaphragmaticus, diaphragmaticus muscles in, in crocodilians that pulls the liver back and that sucks air into the lungs. So it acts like a piston. So the interesting thing is, is that a crocodile can control how the air is distributed in its lungs by essentially bracing its respiratory or its rib muscles while it's drawing air in so it can make its lungs longer. And so if you're a crocodile floating at the surface and you've got your eyes and nostrils at the surface, what you can do is you can control your center of buoyancy so you can drop your body so just the eyes and nostrils are showing or if there's another male nearby and you want to inflate yourself and look bigger you can lengthen your lungs and fill them up and pop above the surface so they have that sort of control on top of the control of the buoyancy that they have when they die uh so what are some other mechanisms that they use to control their like their buoyancy and their ballast and uh tilt and axis so to speak a lot a lot of my work had to do with the fact that most crocodilians spend their days doing really short dives so they tend to they can if they want to hold their breath for a really long time especially a big crocodilian but for the most part they don't do that unless they really have to and what they do is they tend to do really short dives usually three to five minutes maybe 10 minutes at most they drop down they pop up they look around they drop down and pop up and they can almost sleep like that they could just kind of be half asleep and just going up and down kind of like uh, marine mammals yeah except marine mammals are doing it what you know because they to breathe but what crocodiles are doing it essentially just to keep an eye on the environment and yeah it's yeah. a way of now crocodiles and alligators are all about conserving energy so they're they're big reptile they don't have to feed very often and so they want to conserve as much energy as possible and what they don't want is to dive down and have to really struggle to get down. So if they're too buoyant, they'll struggle to get down and they'll use up energy doing that. And if they're not buoyant enough when they're on the bottom, when they're coming up the surface, they'll have to really push and use energy to get back up the surface. Now, if you're doing hundreds of dives a day, this adds up. Even a tiny bit of energy use, this adds up. So what they do is when they dive, that last exhalation of breath, is quite precise and they breathe out just the right amount of air so that when they land on the bottom their weight underwater is just so and it's so there's a there's a thing called specific gravity which is essentially the the density of the animal relative to the density of its environment so in this case water now like, like neutral density or neutral specific gravity would be one so crocodiles are just a little bit over that they're kind of 1.02 something and what's really interesting is it's the same specific gravity that a freshwater turtle will have. But a freshwater turtle has got a heavy shell. So a freshwater turtle has to dive with more air to maintain that, that specific gravity. And so crocodiles have to dive with less, less air to maintain that same level, that same specific gravity. But if you add weights to them, within two dives, they'll make adjustments for the weight. So, and that adjustment will be precise. So it'll, it'll just completely compensate for it. So it'll, they'll return to the same specific gravity. I mean, I, I've known and I've experienced how intelligent crocodilians are, but everything I learn about them just makes me more and more yeah. impressed with how 
this, well, this is all done. Yeah, this is this is all done automatically. So it wouldn't even be a thinking thing. It's it's just an automatic automatic thing that happens. And the other interesting thing I did is I looked at freshwater crocodiles as well, Australian freshwater crocodiles, crocodiles Johnson and I. Yeah. They have they have very very they're they're much denser than a than a saltwater crocodile because they have a lot more osteoderms. So they have got osteoderms even in the belly scales, which is why they were never sought sought after for leather in the same way that saltwater crocodiles were. Saltwater crocodiles have got no osteoderms. And for anyone listening who doesn't know what an osteoderm is, it's that little button of bone that you get under scutes. So those all that armor on the back, all those raised scutes, they each have a, a button of bone underneath them. And so saltwater crocodiles don't have those on their belly scales, whereas freshwater crocodiles do. And so as a consequence, a freshwater crocodile starts off more dense than a saltwater crocodile. So if it, if it dived at the same lung volume as a saltwater crocodile, it would have a higher specific gravity. But they don't. They compensate for it. They dive with more air in their lungs. They hold the same specific gravity that a saltwater crocodile does. Huh. So you also mentioned uh, locom well, another part of your study was uh, the locomotion. So yeah, so I was looking at um, and lots of watching crocodiles and, and doing a lot of drawings showing how they, all the different low modes of locomotion uh, that they use i think what the, for me the coolest one was and this is something i got to see a lot in the wild is that a, a small crocodile when you approach them and they're at the surface and they want to dive really really quickly they don't dive forward what they do is they tilt their head up ever so slightly and they shoot backwards and so uh, like a prawn does <laughs> like or a shrimp so what they do is they they turn their tail to one side and curl it really quickly at the same time they bring both of their hind feet forward with the webbing spread on their toes and they just torpedo backwards and then they swim forwards and so it's a really fast movement if you watch them in the wild on you know, doing that it's just they're gone just like that which is the reason when we were um, we had permits to catch crocodiles for use in, in various studies uh, this is before you could very easily get a lot of crocodiles from crocodile farms this is the very beginning of the, of the crocodile farming industry so we, we had permits to catch them from the wild and we wouldn't use nooses because if you tried to noose a small crocodile as soon as it sensed anything it would just torpedo backwards and be gone so we had to catch them by hand so we used to jump out of the boat into the water grab grab the crocodile then get back into the boat as quickly as you could and this and this is <laughs> this is something that uh there's no way in the world i would do that right now <laughs> because the crocodile populations then were still kind of recovering from hunting in the 70s this is the early 80s when we were doing this and the crocodile populations were still recovering so the crocodiles were there but they were kind of spaced apart whereas now if you do that the chances of there being a, a larger crocodile nearby is much higher and you just don't don't want to risk that yeah yeah number of uh man-eating size crocs definitely was a lot lower back then so yes yeah they're, they're the one and they're very nervous they're very nervous of boats back then as well yeah with good reason yes yeah if you're a big size and you're still around then you probably learned to be wary of boats by then so absolutely uh absolutely. was there anything else you studied with their uh locomotion one of the things that um I didn't really get a chance to study, but it was more kind of an intuitive thing was that the 
the scutes on the back and the serrated tail and everything else are all means for swimming while making the least amount of disturbance at the surface. It's all about channeling water. Oh, I never, I never knew that. that but it kind of makes sense now that why they would have the all those ridges on their skis on the back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you watch them swimming underneath it, like I've I've got a big male crocodile at work, and we've got a, and we've got uh, underwater viewing for this big crocodile. It's fantastic watching a big crocodile when you've got underwater viewing because you get to see all this stuff. And you watch this crocodile swimming across the pool, and you look at the surface, and there's just nothing going on. You would not see that thing coming. That and that's one of the coolest things. Like he's a like a 500 kilogram or 400 kilogram animal. And if that water wasn't clear, if that water was murky, you just wouldn't see him coming. Dang. Uh, okay, so you did that uh, graduate research study. So what was your next step in your career uh, right after you got done with that? Yeah, uh, so that's, study? That's, when I, that's when I got into, into the zoo industry. And, and originally, my, my goal at the time, um, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. The videos yeah, I'm still here. I'm just. Uh, Preserving battery with this uh, the internet, but that was um, that was when I started thinking about uh, because I, I had artistic skills and a zoology background. I thought I'd be an ideal person for doing interpretive graphics, so the informational graphics and that sort of thing. This is before they had digital screens or videos or anything else. So it was all essentially hand hand drawn or uh, not even that much photography in those days. So I was trying to create that role within the zoo I was working at, but it wasn't really happening. They had a they had an art department. They didn't really have an interpretive department. It was a fairly new idea in those days. I don't think the, the name interpretation was even used in Australia. And so, um, so that yeah, so things didn't quite work out, and I left the zoo industry. And that's when I started working as an as an illustrator and started drawing and painting, and so doing a lot of book publishing. I was mainly doing wildlife for books, a little bit of advertising work. And it ended up being a really useful thing for me to do anyway, because later on when I did go back into the zoo industry, it I learned a whole lot of skills having to do with preparing things for publication or for printing. Um, and, and, the, and those sorts of things that are quite important if you're going to be working in that, in that sort, of, sort of field. And then a, an opportunity came up with uh, Sydney Aquarium. There's kind of a change of management. The new management was a bit more amenable to the idea of having a graphics department and having an in-house interpretation and graphics department. But I started off working as an aquarist, so I used to dive with sharks and feed the sharks as well as look after some tanks. Uh, and then after about a year, I formed this graphics department and started doing that. And I did that for quite a long time, almost 10 years. And it was it was really interesting working at an aquarium because it's a, it's a very it's very different from working in a, in a zoo because it's an entirely different it's, it's a kind of working with reptiles is about halfway between working in an aquarium and working with mammals because you're looking after the environment of the animals that that you're caring for which is most of the work you do is actually looking after the environment but the animals themselves because they you know they tend to be fairly trouble-free as long as their environment the variables are right. So if you've got the right temperature and humidity and the right food and everything else, then the animals are going to be okay. Whereas when you're looking after mammals, most mammals, you're just looking after the animals themselves because the, you have very little control over over the, the environmental 
parameters, especially if it's a big mammal living outdoors. And the aquarium is far, even far more technical than looking after reptiles because there's all sorts of water quality parameters. And it was also fun doing that much diving and getting so comfortable with diving. I was diving three times a week. So it was quite a, yeah, so that was really good as well. Yeah, I had a, I had a friend who was a diver at the Houston Aquarium when a Hurricane Harvey hit, oh, and yeah. all that all that bayou water got into the saltwater aquariums. Ouch! They had like I think like two endangered sawfish species. I can't remember exactly which one type, but they're debating: do we air flight them to San Antonio, or do we just try and change the water chemistry as fast as possible? So yeah. they opted for the second option. They managed to save one of them, but still. That's, yeah, that's hard luck, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to prepare for something like Hurricane Harvey where you have like 19-foot yeah. flooding. So, Yeah, and that, that would have been heartbreaking for the people looking after those animals as well. Yeah. So, uh, actually, before I ever found out about you on Facebook or anything like that, I actually stumbled across uh, your YouTube channel. Uh, yeah, I was going to get to that. <laughs> uh, so you're... Exactly what your uh, YouTube channel name is like, Croc Doc, right? Yeah. So I actually I I own Croc Doc and Croc Doc Two, and I for some silly reason the Croc Doc was originally going to be my professional one, but I never quite followed it through, and so all of my material is on Croc Doc Two rather than the Croc Doc. But eventually, I'm going to try to shift the material over to Croc Doc because you know if I own if I own the original, why not use that one? So that. All that sort of stuff. So I, um, it's actually it's funny because from a timing point of view, it was around the time that I was working at the aquarium. It was not long before I started working at the aquarium that I started look, I started looking after lace monitors at home. I, as I mentioned before, I kept reptiles when I was a kid in Canada, and then when I arrived in Australia, I kept reptiles for a very short period of time under license under the university's license. And then I went through a really long period where I didn't keep any reptiles for ages because I really enjoyed seeing them in the wild and I just had no desire to keep them. And so I didn't keep anything. And then they brought in a whole new set of licensing laws in Australia, which enabled people to keep a much broader array of reptiles because prior to that, there's no licensing system, but you were just limited as to what you can keep. There was a, a list, I think, in New South Wales of about nine common species, so like, like a carpet snake, a blue tongue, a, a bearded dragon, a water dragon, a few things like that. So when they introduced this license, licensing system, because they knew a lot of people were keeping reptiles illegally and they wanted to make it legal but have it controlled because they're, they're wildlife. So they brought in the licensing system and suddenly it became legal to keep lace monitors. And I have had a fascination with lace monitors since I was a kid. And I decided that I wanted to keep lace monitors. So I got a license and started keeping lace monitors. And then I started breeding them and started keeping notes on what was going on with the lace monitors. And I, I ended up breeding them for about 20 years. And, uh, and that's where the YouTube videos started. I started off doing YouTube videos about the lace monitors, and I've kind of branched off and doing videos about all sorts of things as well. Yeah, those are the yeah. videos I stumbled across. So, ah, yeah, I'm doing the, that series. I'm doing a series on how to breed 
monitor lizards, and it's not just lace monitors, but monitor lizards in general, using lace monitors and parentes as models because those are the species of bred. Um, oh, those are two of the species of bred, but the two main ones. And I'm up to video eight, which I'm working on at the moment. It's, I've been way behind schedule, but I've just had a whole lot of stuff going on with work and life and everything else. But I'm, I'm getting there, so I should be able to get that one up within a couple of weeks, hopefully. Yeah, so Parentes have always been kind of my uh, dream lizard ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. Uh, what's it like working with them? What are they like compared to other <laughs> yeah, monitors? I'm going to totally disappoint you. <laughs> I I'm find ready. Parentes dead ordinary. <laughs> um, they're, they're kind of they're funny. They're like, and I, with the keepers at work, I said to them very, very early on, I said uh, we're, we're going to have we have quite a few. We have we've got five monitor species at work, and I said uh, so you're going to find it really interesting looking after lace monitors and parentes because they all ask the same thing: what are parentes like? And I said you're going to mm -hmm. find out for yourself. But my experience with them is that lace monitors are just a much more switched-on animal. They just I don't know. They're just really, really intelligent and just really, really curious. Very switched-on, and I find parentes to be kind of a bit of a doofus, bit of a doofus animal. And, so sorry uh go ahead uh, we've, so we've got this we've got this big um this big male lace monitor and this big male parenti in habitats right next to each other and <laughs> especially during during the first lockdowns the first pandemic lockdowns we we went to town with all sorts of enrichment because normally we have to be really careful with enrichment i don't like having unnatural looking things inside the habitats because if you're a visitor to a zoo you don't want to see a cardboard box in a monitor's habitat yeah but when there's no visitors coming in you can do anything anything goes and so we would we'd get together and the, and the keepers would get really creative doing all sorts of convoluted puzzles for the monitors and then we put them in there and then what we do is we run out the front with our phones and get a video of the animal getting into it right so Lace monitor, usually by the time we go around the front, lace monitor is already into it and almost at the point of getting the mouse or had already got the mouse. And it was just amazing watching him. And the Prenti would be about half an hour before he realized there was a box in his habitat. <laughs> and then he'd be, he'd have his head in it and he'd walk around with his head stuck in the box for a while or he'd do something else. And it was just like, and it just was over and over and over again. And after a while, the keeper's kind of going, you know, what? you're right. The Prenti's a bit of a doofus. <laughs> so, um, I've always, yeah, I think I've always, I've always preferred lace monitors anyway. I, I just like to look at them, but, um, but it was kind of a, it's an interesting thing when you, when you're looking after them, they're quite different animals. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've always heard lace monitors like a, a next level intelligent compared to even other monitor lizards. So, yeah. and they're, well, they're, they're of the same lineage. They're kind of, uh, they're, they're closest living relatives, the Komodo dragons. So of all the living monitors, lace monitors and Komodo dragons are actually quite close. Aren't they like in a in their own separate little clade with uh, crocodile monitors as well? Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, oh, sorry, Komodo dragons, lace monitors are sister species, and then a branch off of off of them is the crocodile monitor. And and the three of them form their own little clade. Yeah, and and all three of them are, are intelligent. Yeah, intelligent reptiles. Yeah, I've, uh, I had actually had a guy on who keeps a lot of uh, well, not a lot, but a couple of crocodile monitors, and just seeing like all the stuff he does with them they do seem a pretty intelligent 
and turned on species, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And I get, um, I moved house uh, almost four years, I think. In a couple of months, it'll be four years. A few months will be four years that I moved into this house. And I, I'm back on the bush. So my, there's, a, there's a gully behind my house. And I get wild lace monitors in the area. It was one of the things I was really, really hoping would be the case, that there'd be wild lace monitors in the area. And there are definitely lace monitors in the area. I've identified three individuals so far. So there's at least three that I've seen. And I've watched one male in particular who I call Honey Badger because he's afraid of nothing. And this particular male raids the cockatoo nests every year. So I've got sulfur-crested cockatoos that nest in the gully. And I've got photographs and footage of this lace monitor. He knows exactly when they're nesting. He knows how to get into the nest. <laughs> Um, and I've got footage of him coming out of the nest with a cockatoo chick in his mouth. Yeah, I've seen some of your photographs you posted of them. Those are really cool pictures. I've never thought I'd see anything like those before, really. But yeah, uh, look, I I didn't think I'd see that either. That was, I was I was really excited. I was beside myself. I ended up apologizing to one of my neighbors because she was outside with the kids and she could hear the cockatoos screaming. They have this really loud alarm call that just burst your eardrums even from a distance. And she asked me, she said, what's going on? Because she could see that I was looking through my lens and watching them. And I, and I was really excitedly telling her, oh, the cockatoos, you know, it's getting a chick. It's getting a cockatoo chick. Or the lace one is getting a cockatoo chick. And she sort of went, poor baby. And I went, this is the most amazing thing I've seen. And I thought, I probably came across a bit cold. <laughs> the next day I spoke to her and said, look, I understand. It, it, it's sad. But at the same time, this is nature, and this was it was just spectacular to be able to watch that in person and see it happening. Yeah. So uh, as someone who originally from Canada now lives where lace monitors are, yeah, uh, you probably have, probably have the most accurate opinion of this. But I've always heard lace monitors kind of described as like South uh, Australian raccoons almost. Is there any yeah, more to that? They are almost that. They are the animal that if you're in a picnic area and something's going to raid your picnic, it's going to be a lace monitor. <laughs> if, you know, if, you're, if you're having a barbecue and you're, you're out, you know, even on the outskirts of Sydney and the national parks there, because Sid, Sydney is surrounded by national parks. There's uh, 12 or so national parks. There's three really large ones just around the, the outskirts of Sydney. And if you're in a picnic area in any of those national parks, and you've got a barbecue happening, and it's in summer and a warm day, you'll get lace monitors coming around looking for food. Now, for me, that would be like the most awesome picnic ever, but. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. I used to, uh, before I moved into this house, now that I've got lace monitors so close, I don't tend to drive anywhere to go see them, but before I lived here, I used to drive about 25 minutes from where I was living to one particular picnic area, and I've been visiting that picnic area for I was visiting that picnic area for about um, 18 years or 19 years. And so I was photographing the lace monitors all the time. And I, and I got a feel for the individuals. Like I knew who who all the locals were with the lace monitors, when, when there'd be a new one. And got to, got to get a feeling for just how long they live and how, how stable a population it is. And I used to go back to that picnic area every year on Australia Day, because Australia Day is January 26th, that is winter in North America, but that's the middle of summer here. And people flock to picnic areas to have an outdoor barbecue because it's Australia Day. 
Yeah. And that's when you get the maximum amount of interactions between people and lace monitors. And it's really funny watching it because people do the craziest things uh, when they see a lace monitor. <laughs> and one of my favorites was this woman, she was standing up on top of a picnic table and she was screaming and she was throwing bits of sausage to this lace monitor. And I, I said, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm trying to get that animal away from me. And I said, well, maybe you should stop feeding it. And she said, no, I'm throwing this, I'm throwing the sausages to get it to go away from me. And I said, it can see that you're throwing it. <laughs> and so what it's doing is you throw a bit of sausage, it goes to get the sausage, and it knows if it comes back running at you, you're going to reward it again by throwing another bit of sausage. I said, stop rewarding it. <laughs> I said, by the way, it can get up on that picnic table, so that's not going to help you. So she stopped throwing the sausages and the lace monitor ignored her after that. Uh, <laughs> the monitor found out about found out how to do a, a hostage racket yes yeah they they can be quite intimidating too most of the, most of the really big males know that if they rush someone that person's likely to drop whatever they have in their hands they they, they will usually turn last second but they they tend to some of them get really really bold i've been surprised at how bold some of them get i've even got a video of this this one particular monitor that I called Bluey, who was a regular at this picnic area for years and years and years. And he would recognize the color of the recycle, recycled shopping bags. So that the, the big supermarkets here were producing these recycled shopping bags that were either blue or green in color. And they're made of essentially recycled plastic. And the monitors knew that if someone was carrying one of those bags, it's quite likely they had food in it. And so this person had one of these bags that put the bag on the ground. Now, I'm pretty sure they'd already finished their meal and just had some plastic containers that still had food smell. And this lace monitor just went straight across the picnic area, straight for this bag as soon as it hit the ground and it had its head in the bag. And the guy was trying to get the lace monitor away from the bag. And he was kind of kicking at it, kind of <laughs> this half-ass kick. And the monitor was whipping him with his tail, not even a really savage tail whip but just kind of like a go away sort of tail whip without even pulling his head out of the bag <laughs> so he had his head in the bag wasn't even looking at the guy was just kind of flicking his tail going go away i've got this so quite quite quite, quite funny characters man I, I need to get a lace monitor someday yeah <laughs> i'd be a bit but someday i think one of the things too is that living here you really get an idea and if, if you if you do get one all i can say is given plenty of space because i think one of the things that um, people don't realize until they've seen monitors out in the wild is just how active they are and how much wandering around they do the wild ones yeah. are like perpetual motion machines they're just constantly wandering around and they cover yes. a lot of ground <laughs> yeah that's uh one of the reasons i don't really have any monitors at the moment is i just don't have ton of space so yeah I, I i was i was when i was breeding them uh i was keeping them indoors in a reasonable sized enclosure and then i when i moved here i set up an aviary which was twice twice like it's about a like a five meter aviary so that's 15 feet long and uh and the monitors would use all of it they do they're just constantly moving So uh, after you uh, your career with uh, 
the arts, uh, the art yeah. uh, department. You got hired on with the, at the time, newly founded Sydney Zoo. Yeah, fact, like actually, the there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of an important bit in between, though, <laughs> which I should mention, and that is I went through a period of, uh, so when, when I left the aquarium, I went through a period of, of working as a consultant for a while. And so I was doing, uh, I did some consulting work for an aquarium in Singapore, was flying to and from Singapore for a couple of years, uh, which was really cool as well, because I, I got to spend a lot of time with water monitors and with clouded monitors. But somewhere in, the, in that period, I spent about a year at, um, finishing a book that I'd been working on with Gordon Grigg. This is so he was my PhD supervisor. And when I was a student, he and I used to talk about one day we'd produce a book on crocodilians. And it started off with being one day we'll do a book on crocodilians. And then Gordon started saying, well, when I retire, we're going to work on a book on crocodilians. And in 2007, uh, Gordon had retired from, he was then at the University of Queensland, and they held a big symposium for him over the course of a weekend to celebrate his retirement. And then there's a dinner on the Saturday night. In the middle of that dinner, he and I were sitting there. I was sitting across the table from me. He looked up at me and he said, well, he said really dryly, well, I guess we better start that book now. And we literally started it that week and then worked on that book for about the next seven years. So um, the book's called the, it's called Biology and Evolution of Crocodilians. Actually, uh, I actually have an electronic copy of that book. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It's something I'm very proud of. I think it was a, it's a huge effort on our part. It took us seven years to produce that book. And, and towards the end, I, I decided that at one stage I was just going to essentially devote a year to finishing it and wasn't doing much work as a consultant during that year, just so we can finish the book. So uh, with all of those work with uh, clouded monitors and uh, Asian water monitors, which is a species I'm a lot more familiar with, yeah. uh, how, how do they compare? How do they differ with uh, the Australian monitor species you've worked with? Uh, well, I wasn't, I wasn't actually working with the, the water monitors and clouded monitors. It was more just seeing them in the wild uh, an awful lot. I had a, there's a couple of spots in Singapore that um, a couple of reserves that I used to visit on a regular basis. That I'd, I just spent, go there and spend the day and watch all sorts of wildlife, and particularly the monitors. And I found that, uh, yeah, not, so it's really it's really hard for me to compare. I did get a chance to, to see watch some foraging an awful lot, and I've got some, um, I've got a, a lot of video of young clouded monitors kind of working their way through the rainforest, flicking over uh, leaf litter, looking for worms and insects. Which I thought was really interesting, and they they were eating quite a few earthworms, which surprised me. And and the water monitors were, I saw them scavenging, um, and I saw them hunting for. There's also some crustaceans living because it's sort of a brackish brackish water tidal area where there this population was. And uh, yeah, I don't I, so I'm not really. It's really hard for me to compare without keeping them. Fair enough. Yeah. The water monitors get, there's, I saw some massive ones in Singapore though. Some really, yeah. really big ones. I've worked with one or two big ones uh, before with some of my various uh, internships and jobs. So I've, as far as species I've worked with, they're probably top my list 
and yeah. enters the monitors. But they seem a lot more laid back than ice monitors. Even the, even the wild ones, they get really used to people. Yeah, and I've, and I've seen them actually. I've seen them in quite a number of places in Southeast Asia. I've seen them in Indonesia as well, and in Thailand. And uh, I managed to see one in Thailand foraging on, on a turtle, catching a snail-eating turtle, hmm. which was I thought was very, very cool. I was very excited that it wasn't, when I took the photographs, that it wasn't a red-eared slider because <laughs> it's very, <laughs> they're everywhere. But it was actually a native turtle. Yeah. It's quite a, quite a funny story. I was, in, I was in Thailand for a monitor lizard conference. And so a few of us went to this big park, Lumpini Park, in the middle of Bangkok. It's famous for its monitors. And I saw this one particular monitor that just had spectacular patterning. It was really beautiful. I wanted to get some photographs of it. And like any animal, if you pay too much attention to a wild animal, they know right away that you're focusing on them. If you're, you know, whatever they move, if you kind of, even if you're not looking directly at it, if you kind of, you angle your body towards it, they sense that they're being targeted and they get more nervous. And so this animal was getting harder and harder and harder for me to get anywhere near to get photographs. So I decided that I would look to see where it was going, walk ahead of it and anticipate where it was going to be and then just wait for it with my camera. So it was forging along the shoreline and I was waiting for this thing to come. And I thought, that's kind of odd. It should have been here by now because it's taken, it's taken quite a while to get here. And I stepped out onto this, there's a, a, a palm tree kind of leaning over the water. So I was kind of walking on the trunk of this palm tree to see if I could see the monitor. And as I came around, as I looked, I could see it just you know, not that far away. And it had this turtle in its mouth and it turned to look at me because <laughs> it could see I was looking at it. And while I was looking at it, it just kind of tilted its head back and then swallowed the turtle. So while I was standing there, there were a couple of other people from the conference with me and I said, uh, I said, what are you looking at? And I said, come over here, you might want to see this. <laughs> and I was quite calm and they came over and they were all going, oh my God, look at that. They got really excited and they thought it was, because I, I underplayed it a bit, but I managed to get a whole series of photographs of, of this monitor swallowing the turtle. So uh, with your current job at the Sydney Zoo, do you want to, go over uh, what all that entails kind of your yeah i um i got involved in 2016 and i think I, as i as i mentioned before I, I was employee number six and so the first first year and a half essentially it was just doing a whole lot of planning we weren't on site yet we were in an office in town and just doing lots of planning the zoo existed only in people's minds and on and on, and on a piece of paper as a you know and, and a, a digital copy of this plan and we were just organizing a whole lot of stuff. And when the civil works team, these are the people that go and remove the grass and start shaping the actual surface of the earth itself, when they when they moved onto the site, we moved onto the site shortly afterwards, uh, just before the construction crews arrived. And so uh, we were in this little demountable along with the construction team on this essentially this wide open field with nothing in it. And um, it was a really wild ride because most zoos tend to grow organically. They, they tend to start off with a small collection that someone has, might be a private collection, or it might even be a public zoo, and then they tend to grow organically over time. 
it's very, very rare that someone goes, we're going to start a zoo from scratch and it's going to be like a full on zoo, not a wildlife park, but an app, app, you know, actual zoo with elephants and giraffes and zebras and the full gamut of big exotic mammals, all the charismatic megafauna, as we like to call them, you know, reptile house, a native Australiana section, an aquarium. And I got to be involved in just uh, planning a whole lot of it and helping even other teams with their areas. So because I've got drawing skills and computer skills, the other curators, when they came on board, if they were trying to plan, let's say, the series of gates through which the rhino is going to go to get out of the paddock and so all the containment everything else they'd give me a hand drawing and i would digitize it and then they would go through it together so i had to learn how these things work in order to be able to draw them and then we'd send them on to the construction crew so i got to i got to learn about a whole lot of other animals that i wouldn't normally work with and there were some animals that I had worked with before, uh, which I got a chance to work with again, like chimpanzees. Uh, and also early on when we didn't have very many staff, we didn't, we had a few curators, we had hardly any keepers. And we were getting animals in from all around the world, from other zoos. And so they had to go through quarantine and we were quarantining them on site. And what that meant is if you were working with animals in quarantine, you couldn't work with any other animal that day. Now I didn't have a reptile house yet. It hadn't been built yet. And so if a curator had under their care, they had a number of mammals, but they had some new ones come in, whoever worked with those new ones couldn't work with the rest of the collection. So their staff immediately got halved. So rather than be short staffed, I volunteered to help other teams look after animals. So I got a chance to work with hyenas, uh, painted dogs, spider monkeys, chimpanzees, all, all sorts of things. It was, and it was, yeah, it was really enjoyable. We had to learn we had to do a specific course for all the protocol for quarantine. So everything was done wearing white hazmat suits with masks and rubber boots and rubber gloves. And there's a whole procedure for getting in and out of that gear each time you went into the area. So, hmm. yeah, that was pretty cool. And one of my jobs was also to document the build of the zoo. So I had my camera gear on site every day. And we'd be taking photographs and videos of everything as it was being built. And that also gave me a front row ticket to be there when animals were coming in. Because there's a very small number of people that were allowed to be involved in that. Because you just want to minimize the number of people hanging around when dangerous animals are coming in, for example. Yeah. And so um, so we'd be there. And sometimes things would arrive just because they're coming from overseas. They'd be arriving in the middle of the night. And so it'd be this... I've got lots of really cool footage of really it's really dark and there's just these little lights in the corner and there's a truck backing up and massive crates coming in and, and these animals being unloaded into their habitats and it was yeah it was a, the whole process was really really interesting sounds like the opening scene of jurassic park it was exactly like that it was very without without the escape but it was, that's exactly what it was you'd be strapping a crate to a sliding door and then someone would go, okay, well, you know, the, the door would go up and the animal would come running out into the, into the area. And, and it and everyone everyone joked about how much like Jurassic Park it was. It was quite a quite funny. Not as fancy as, as Jurassic Park. We didn't have all the like, <laughs> all the flashing lights and stuff. There's a lot more manual than that. But uh, but that was that was really interesting. And then getting to design 
the reptile area was really cool as well. It's nerve wracking because uh, you know anyone, everyone, everyone has a dream of being able to design their own reptile house for a zoo. But there's part of you that's going, what if I make mistakes? What if I make a mistake that might endanger someone later on? What if I put a door in the wrong spot? And, and there's all those sorts of things you have to take into account. I've actually put together a talk that I give to herb societies on the building of the of the reptile area, the reptile house, because there's a whole lot that goes into it that most people wouldn't stop to think about, but you're forced to think about. Like line of sight, lighting, reflection on glass, all those sorts of things, just so people aren't trying to look at a snake and just seeing the reflection of a tank that's behind them. Those sorts of things that you've got to take into account, as well as all the safety features and space for keepers to be able to work behind the scenes without being seen, where the lights go without being seen by the public. And yeah, it was a really interesting process and exciting watching it going up as well. Yeah, so that's kind of like my ultimate life dream goal sort of thing is to start my own uh, sort of weekend reptile park, more or less. Yeah. So yeah, I, I've just been initially putting some thoughts into that, like how to build enclosures that you could just access without having, you know, a very obvious and ugly looking front opening gate or something like that. Well, that so. was uh, obviously the first, one of the first things is you, we can't have any kind of front opening things in, that go into a public area, especially when you're dealing with venomous snakes. Oh yeah. You have to, you have, to have airlocks uh, yeah. so that if an animal does escape, it, it only goes into the next room. It can't go into the public space. So there's actually between, for example, our venomous snakes and the general public, there are, you know, the, one, two, three, four doors, three of which are locked. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, sort of like a double or triple seal, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And, and even, but... even the habitats themselves have got, they've got, we've got double doors so that if I've got a keeper who is not signed off to work with venomous snakes, they can open the top door to get a temperature reading, but they can't open the bottom door to actually reach in and get the snake out. All right. Yeah. Differently. Yeah, but that's one thing I probably will never really work with at all is venomous just because I mean growing up they were like my big interest, but now I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't want to really work with something that all it takes is one it's just one little blind spot and, and it's trip it. to the yeah. ER. Yeah. yeah, especially especially uh when you you know a lot of the if you're working with uh a lot of species that have Kind of myotoxic or, or, or um, really destructive venom. So you're going to have like long, you know, a life altering injury. You know, it, it yeah, so something like a bitus or something like that. Yeah. The Australian snakes are crazy, as you know. They're, they're, they're crazy venomous. <laughs> but for the most part, they leave a clean corpse. You don't get, <laughs> you don't get that kind of, you know, the, the, that tissue eating, like horrible stuff that you get. Cytotoxic stuff, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, very, very few. That I mean, there, there's a little bit of that in some of the Australian snakes, but it's not, it's not as nasty as it is uh, in a lot of the overseas species. And here, and here, it's uh, just really highly, highly toxic venom. But if you follow the protocols, use a constrictive bandage, you go to the hospital, they, they monitor your symptoms, and then uh, administer an antibiotic or actually anti venom if it's if it's needed which it isn't always needed because sometimes the snakes don't envenomate and um 
So as a consequence, the, the actual death rate in Australia from venomous snakes is really, really low. So the, even with the general public, so that uh, on average, the, I think the average fatality rate is about one per year. And the snake most often responsible is the Eastern Brown. But even, even with them, I mean, they're a very nervous snake. They've got the second most, the second most venomous snake in the world. But they only envenomate, you know, some of the time, um, and they've got short fangs, so you know they quite often won't bite through jeans or something like that. But it's a lot of bites. Um, but people tend to get to hospital in time and get treated, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, if you do get bitten by an uh, venomous Australian lapid, downside you might be dead. Upside, at least it'll be a open casket funeral. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, and, that, and, the, and the, snake, the funny thing is, is, is coming from Canada to Australia, and you meet herpers here, and every herper you meet here has grown up um, catching snakes. They just, you know, as a kid, they're out there, you know, picking up snakes, and so they most most herpers here are really adept at handling things like eastern brown snakes. It's second nature. Uh, I had to learn it um i didn't grow up doing that but it's kind of a and it's a very different they're very different from from dealing with something like a rattlesnake for example because you can't just go up and hook them you have to tail them because they're very fast and they've gone we have a group of people at the zoo uh, that are signed off on removing snakes in public areas in the zoo because we get uh, in in summer we get a lot of eastern brown snakes and red blade black snakes on the zoo site so we have a we have a radio call, which is called, we call it Sierra rather than snake. So if someone's standing near someone's radio, they don't freak out by hearing the word snake. And some yeah. will just go, okay, we have a Sierra. Can, can the Sierra team come to the lions, for example? And then you know, the people like, will head over there with a hoop bag and a, and a hook in our hands and then uh, try to get whatever snake is there. So, um, and then and during the summer, we'll get two or three snakes a week. Yeah, but I mean, growing up uh, in Ohio in the Midwest, yeah. well, specifically where I'm at, I've never actually seen a wild venomous snake in my home state. That's the only one I go down yeah. south that I see them. The most common snake I see is like a northern broadband water snake or an eastern garter. So, yeah. It's, that, it's that's definitely. Sorry. So, I was going to say, it's like, yeah, it would be kind of almost an alien experience uh, as me as a herper just going down somewhere and like, the majority of the snakes there, well, not even not the majority, but a large portion of them are. No, it is the majority. <laughs> it, is, it is the majority. <laughs> so the the if you see a snake, it's a it's far more likely to be a venomous species than not here. Yeah, that just way, sounds way more yeah. That sounds completely alien to anything I've ever experienced here in the states. So from what I recall, I think sixty percent of Australian snakes are venomous. Now, they're not all dangerously venomous, but uh, you know, most, of, most of the snakes that you'll encounter will be elapids. Yeah. So, so for example, where I live right now, um, I'm just trying to think how many species of snake I've seen locally. Actually, if I include ones that my neighbors have found in their pool, there's probably about six or seven species that I've seen so far. Uh, and yeah so four of them have been elapids wow and, and uh, in terms of in terms of frequency 
see the life it's way more than you see anything else <laughs> i get red by black snakes around my house so the closest the closest i've seen a red by black snake to the house is probably about two meters from where i'm sitting at the moment <laughs> i'm looking at my, my window from my office and uh but i was so excited when i saw that i, I could i just you know i got your chance of getting bitten are really slim they're not the sort of you very rarely hear of anyone getting bitten by an australian lapid just walking around and randomly getting bitten it's usually when people are trying to interfere with the snake that they get bitten yeah fair enough um yeah. so uh, this might be i don't know if this is it you know much about this particular subject or not but do you know why australia has such high uh lapid diversity like why they're the most diverse and populous snake group it's kind of uh so Australia is a continent that's been isolated for a long time. And it's famous for having the, the really diverse marsupials. And everyone knows that the marsupials fill all the niches that other mammals would in our, on other continents. So we have kangaroos instead of deer or antelope. We, we have thylacines instead of wolves or dogs. And, that, and that's the way it goes, right? But yeah. That didn't just happen with marsupials. That's happened with pretty much every group of animals. So, for example, monitor lizards, because we don't have a lot of small mammalian predators, or we do, but they're mostly nocturnal, monitor lizards fill the niche that would normally be filled by things like um, weasels fox. and fox and cats and all those sorts of things. They're all filled by monitor lizards. Now, our elapids are pretty much like your colubrids. So they fill all those sorts of niches. So they're basically yeah. a venomous rat snake, ecologically yeah. speaking. Yeah. Yes, we have the equivalent of rat snakes. We have the equivalent of whip snakes, and they're, they're called whip snakes, and they look just like a whip snake. They've got you know big side hunters. We've got uh, we've got death adders, which look like they look like a, a, a crotalid. They look like a viper. They're short yeah. and fat, but they're still in the lapid. They're an ambush hunter. We've I was actually in a, I was actually in a I'm in a group chat with a couple of people in Australia and. And they were talking about how you know uh death adders are their favorite snakes and i was like that's just a pit viper cosplayer but yeah yeah it's funny because everybody that i speak to here they a lot of or not everybody a lot of people tell me that death adders are their favorite venomous snake my my favorite is the red belly black snake because they're just a beautiful looking snake but yeah so so you see the a lot of the lapids like lapids around like around my house for example so the, the red bay black snake would be the largest one, but there's quite a few small ones that you'll find that live in, you know, they might live under bark or under rocks that are kind of small and, you know, the equivalent of a, I'm just trying to think what they'd be equivalent of, you know, like a decay snake or a, or a ring neck snake, in, but, but they're an elated. Huh. And so they're, so they're not all big venomous, big, really you know, like, like dangerously venomous. They're, they're quite a, quite a few smaller ones as well that fill different niches. There are diamond pythons in this area. I've yet to see one, but they're they're here. They're definitely here. My neighbors have seen them on the street, and I've got a friend that lives across the gully, and he's, he gets about two or three of them in his backyard every summer. So eventually, I'll see one around here. And I have so, seen one of the very few colubrids in Australia in my backyard as well, which is a, which is a green tree snake. Yeah, uh, I knew there. I've known there. I knew there were colubrids, some colubrids in Australia. I didn't know exactly how diverse and like which kinds were the colubrids. Yeah, there's, there's, there's very few, <laughs> very, very few. 
just got been outcompeted by the Alapids. Yeah, absolutely. The Alapids have taken over. And the other interesting thing is, is that parrots here have also diversified. So we have a lot of um, a lot of parrots that are nectar feeders. We have ones that are seed eaters. We have ones that eat grubs. They're kind of they have diversified hugely as well. So like a continent, you look at Africa. Africa is a massive continent, and what they've, they've got about I can't remember like less than half a dozen species of parrot. Uh, whereas Australia's got just crazy numbers of parrots. Got more parrots than any other uh, continent. Really, didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, like in my backyard, I get. Uh, I'm just trying to think how many, I think about eight or 10 species that I'll, that I'll see. Huh. Some some very regularly, some that are permanent residents and others occasionally, but um, I've got three species of cockatoo that I can see in any one day. So I've got the sulfur-crested cockatoos, which are the classic white cockatoo with the yellow crest, and two species of black cockatoo. I've got the yellow-tailed black cockatoos and the glossy black cockatoos that I get in my backyard. Um, king parrots. Crimson rosellas, eastern rosellas, um, rainbow lorikeets. Yeah, it's just <laughs> the one of the. If I step outside and hear a, no, a, a bird noise, it's most likely going to be some species of parrot. That's I didn't really know that. But that's incredible. Yeah, and, that, and that's another thing that it took a while for me to get used to, having come from Canada, where most of the birds are brown. It's just seeing this these spectacularly colored <laughs> birds like rainbow lorikeets which are they're so common here they're almost like australia or the on the east coast they're almost like our, our our sparrow there are just so many of them and they are just the most beautiful looking bird really cheeky as well yeah well i might be a bit of a homer but i do kind of prefer my uh new world warblers so oh yeah so one thing we have going for us is for my say so that this is where we got the a lot of nesting for new world warblers so you say a lot of nesting do you say a lot of species nest in and yes. around where i live so oh, nice but also, also uh one group that from what i heard is like not even exists in australia that it's kind of surprising to me is uh uh salamanders do you, does australia have any native salamander species Salamanders, no salamanders here, no, no not a single one. We have we have no toads either, no uh, no true toads, no bufonids. Really? Huh. Yeah. So, so all the frogs in Australia belong to a very limited number of families that have just really diversified. Just a lot of uh, convergent evolution going on with yeah, those groups. Yeah. yeah. So our our hylids, for example, um, they've diversified. Hugely, so there's a lot of hylids here, which are tree frogs, in most other places. But some of them here are classic tree frogs, but there's others that are very much like your ranids. They're they're kind of they're they're in terms of what they look like and how they behave. They're more like a leopard frog than a tree frog. Huh. And um, and we do have frogs here that kind of act like toads. That are you find them in deserts. That they're, they're, they're mostly terrestrial. They, Burry and wait for rains and stuff like that, but they're not actual bufonids. Huh. Which is why the cane toad has caused so much havoc in Australia because the animals here aren't adapted. Very few of the animals here are adapted for bufotoxins. So if they encounter an actual real toad, it kills them, and they and they don't have the either the behavioral or the 
metabolic means of dealing with them. Yeah, uh, one interesting conversation I had with a guest on here was uh, with Dr. Zach Lofman, and he was talking about uh, some of the different, like, uh, either behavioral or uh, physiological and anatomical sn things snakes have done to adapt to bufotoxins throughout the world. Yeah. Like how yeah. uh, hog snakes just have giant adrenal glands, whereas other snakes will, like, actually flip the toad upside down so, like, less teeth are perforating the toxin glands when they swallow yeah. them or stuff like that. But there's like what one species that's uh naturally immune to uh yeah, the yeah the keelback which is it's in the same subfamily as your water snakes. Oh yeah. Yeah actually that actually makes a lot of sense since I think it's the Asiatic species of keelback that actually uh utilizes bufotoxins for its own defense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. like with the yeah. tiger keelback, I think if yeah. I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the few poisonous snakes. Yeah. They, they sequester the toxins. Yeah. You, you so, tend to find with um, with the animals that are able to deal with the toxins, they tend to be from kind of Eurasian or Australasian distribution rather than strictly Australian. So um, so things like 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 the keelback, which kind of you know it it's not it originated in asia and so even the even the saltwater crocodile is not as affected by the bufotoxin as the freshwater crocodile because the saltwater crocodile is a, a asiatic of, yeah it's distribution goes right across asia and one of the things that they're worried about is the komodo dragon is actually an, an australian so it's more australasian than asian even though it's lives in indonesia it as i said before it's related to the lace monitor and it, it evolved in Australia and does not have that allele that enables enables it to process bufotoxin. So an Asian water monitor can eat toads and be fine. A Komodo dragon would die. Now there huh. aren't there are no there are no native bufondids east of Wallace's line. So if you go east from from Bali, um, as soon as you get to get to Lombok, that's when you stop finding toads. But eventually, toads will start appearing on Komodo and Rinsha and the other islands where the Komodo dragons are, and it will cause a problem because people yeah. will bring them over in boats. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of uh, you know, saltwater crocodiles uh, being, I've heard they were more of an Asiatic in origin before arriving in Australia. And I've heard that they uh, were actually one of the driving causes in the extinction of a. Uh, Native Australian group of crocodilians, the uh, Mekosukans. I don't know if, how much you know about that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know much about that. I don't know if anyone can, can prove that. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know enough well, about that. So to, to comment on it, really. I'll, I mean, Mekosukans were always something that kind of a uh, fascinated oh, me quite a bit. I'm, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with with uh, Mekosukans. I just wasn't. I don't know what the involvement was in the saltwater crocodile. I've, yeah. I've just heard that they were kind of a driving cause behind. Uh, the subaquatic species kind of being outcompeted, but again, that's just something I read on Wikipedia. So, yeah, who knows not... who wrote that? <laughs> Theoretically, then we should never have seen them. They 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 wouldn't have evolved at all, would they? <laughs> it's yeah. not like unless unless something unless it was unless it was Australia getting closer to Asia again with the continental drift, that saltwater crocodiles were then able to. Yeah, encounter them. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about the Mekosukans. Yeah. 
Uh, so with that uh, biology and evolution of crocodiles book, uh, do you want to go into detail about that at all? Hmm. Um, it's a so Gordon Gordon wrote the text, uh, and I was responsible for sort of figures and explanatory drawings and that sort of stuff. But I would read through the text and have editorial input in the text as well. It's written in a way that if you uh, you may have found this yourself, but if you read through it, it's a it's a very easy read, even if you're not that technical, because of Gordon's writing style. And he starts each chapter off with a story of something that he'd witnessed somewhere and then goes into the details of what enables a crocodile to do that. And Gordon's background is as a physiologist, a, a physiological ecologist. So he's really interested in how, how animals interact with their environment. So it's broken up into like a whole series of chapters, covers everything from the anatomy of the heart, you know, breathing, this section on buoyancy, of course, and we look at populations and uh, reproduction. So it's, um, yeah, I'm not sure what I could say with that. <laughs> we did, it's been very well received by our peers. We did we did get a, a Whitley medal for it, which is Australia's top honor for a scientific uh, publication, like a book, for a uh, book type publication. Um, yeah, it's got a lot of information in it. I could, for anyone listening, I can vouch for Sam that it is a really, really good book. Especially, I enjoyed the chapter talking about uh, the urinary system and how they handled uh, salt water. Well, that's a that's a very that's a subject very close to Gordon. When I first arrived in Australia, uh, he had a student, uh, Laurie Taplin. And Laurie Tavern was looking at salt and water balance. And specifically, what was interesting about crocodilians is that everyone knew how sea turtles excreted salt, how marine iguanas excreted salt. But no one had any idea how a crocodile that was living in brackish water or salt water could excrete salt. And so a lot of people thought that they had to seek out fresh water and drink fresh water or else they couldn't live permanently in salt water. Now, one of the problems that they had was that as soon as you grab a crocodile to work with it, the first thing you do is you tape its mouth shut so you don't get harmed while you're working with it. And what ended up happening is they eventually discovered that the salt glands were on the tongue. And that's probably part of the reason it took so long for them to be discovered is that everyone's grabbing a crocodile and taping its mouth shut. And I, and I arrived in in australia just around the time that they made that discovery it was a, it was major news because this is like a whole taxon for which no one had had known how they had how they secreted salt and it's also an unusual salt secretion process because no other animal secretes it that i know of secretes it from their tongue and it's also one of the distinguishing characteristics between the crocodilidae and the alligatoridae yeah Alligators have a lot fleshier tongue with no yeah. uh, lingual salt glands and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so you, I've heard that you can even find uh, quote unquote freshwater crocodiles in like hypersaline marshes and stuff like that as well. Yeah, I think it's a is it Lynn Bite, but uh, Gordon and uh, Gordon and Laurie and Lynn Beard, uh, did, I think Peter Holland may have gone with him as well, but they did some some work up there looking at 
freshwater crocodiles living in marine environments. So and Gordon and I went up to when we were working on the book, we went up to the Northern Territory in 2009 just to get some extra photographs for the book. And we went with the guys that uh, were catching crocodiles in Darwin in Darwin Harbor. They try to keep crocodiles out of Darwin Harbor so that no one gets eaten. <laughs> and they uh, one of the crocodiles that they caught had barnacles on its skews. So I've got some photographs of that. And these are the sort of the same species of barnacle you'd find on a marine turtle. So for a crocodile to be in salt water long enough to get barnacles, it had to be in there for quite a long time, which is really interesting. <laughs> but what's Calling them saltwater crocodile is an unfortunate name because a lot of people tend to think that they're only found in saltwater and that, that can become quite dangerous. They go all the way up into freshwater. Yeah. So in Australia, there's a lot of places where you could be really far from the ocean, way up in the freshwater, and there'll still be saltwater crocodiles. Yeah, it's probably better to use the uh, estuarine crocodiles, uh, probably a more accurate term. Yeah, or, or Indo-Pacific crocodile. But it's one of those things that never never took. Yeah, salty is just a little catchier. Yeah, yeah. Indo-Pacific crocodile doesn't. You can't shorten it. So, uh, I've always been kind of interested in uh, freshwater crocodiles. I've never had a chance to work with them. I've had some yeah. limited uh, chances to work with salties, but yeah. uh, what are freshies uh, like as compared to others? <laughs> Most of them. Most of them are really cranky. <laughs> <They're> just... <laughs> They're nasty little animals. It's funny. I like they. They have their full of personality. They, um, they will probably probably because they're smaller than salty, so they're probably more defensive and more nervous. And as a consequence, they tend to uh, defend by offense. They they will jump at you. They will leap out of the water at your face. So they they're full on, and they're very athletic. I've and heard they, I've heard they gallop a lot compared to others. Yeah, yeah. They they gallop quite readily. To get away from you but they also will uh torpedo right out of the water i've had them torpedoing out of the water towards my face uh, <laughs> so they crack me up it just like a... I'm, I'm just glad they don't get the size of saltwater crocodiles <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually in the wild they, they never bother people or they very rarely bother people in the wild they, there's a lot of swimming holes where there are freshwater crocodiles and people go swimming them and they very very rarely even you know see them they tend to be lying on the bottom or hidden in a crevice somewhere i've yeah. been snorkeling i've come across them in uh the kimberley um got some yeah some photographs of a big quite a big wild one that was just used to being fed people having barbecues and throw out sausages and stuff so he was sitting on the shore looking at us and just walked up and took took some photographs of it but um they're yeah they're, they're a funny animal yeah I've, just like a surface level uh uh, thing I've noticed, like it seems like whenever there's like a smaller species of crocodilian that kind of they seem to be like, like I said, more upfront and defensive. Like yeah, like Chinese the, like alligators the, versus American alligators, probably the most comical comparison I've ever seen. Because like uh, one zoo I worked at, one of the ways to you know call an alligator up was just make this little sound, and now American alligators come kind of curious looking up. See what's going on. Chinese alligators would launch, try and basically jump over the fence to get at your face if you did make that noise. <laughs> just that noise. They just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it, it's, it's, it's definitely very true with crocodilians. A lot of the smaller ones are crankier, like this, the dwarf caves and stuff. I have seen some really calm freshwater crocodiles. That was quite a few years ago. Uh, I was visiting another zoo, and they had uh, in their vet block they had a couple of freshwater crocodiles that were uh, somebody had raised, and and they said, "Oh, can you show my staff? You know how you'd handle one of these crocodiles?" And I kind of walked in there, and and I, as I was grabbing this crocodile, I said. You should take into account this is not normal. They're not normally this calm. That's probably a good out. disclaimer. Yeah, it was. But um, yeah, my my experiences with them when I was, especially when I was a student, I was working with quite a few of them. Were that they were just they were a lot of them were very very cranky. Guess there's a bit of truth to the term Napoleon's complex. Yeah, yeah. I love working with our our, our big salty at work. We've got a. He's not huge. He's four point one meters, four hundred kilograms. He's quite a big male. He's he's got a really it's a really good looking salty at work. Got a very well proportioned head, and he's got one of those really rugose heads with a really exaggerated jawline that big saltwater crocodiles get with really big teeth. And yeah. um, he's just magnificent, magnificent animal, and really fun to work with. They're very they're very quick learners, and they're also a little bit cheeky, and. Uh, he developed this funny rapport with crocodiles that's like i still wouldn't want to fall in the water i'd be toast if i did <laughs> but, but at the same time he's so responsive he and we, we we now do paid encounters so if you come during the warmer months you can pay money and you can go into a cage dairy while we feed the crocodile and myself and the team have been training the crocodile to come right up to this cage area so people can see him eating a chicken really close by like half a meter away from the from the caged area and then I'll say to them, like, okay, um, watch this. And I'll walk away, go stand by the water. And I'll say, has he finished the chicken? And they'll go, yep. And I'll take a little stick and I'll just touch the water and go, water, like that. The crocodile turns around, goes into the water, <laughs> and then targets, comes right up the stick, touches his nose to the stick. Yeah. And almost everyone that we've had that's done the encounter, they've, they've been blown away by seeing the crocodile up close. But when I do that, they just go, I couldn't even get my dog to do that. <laughs> I think that says more about you than your dog, but <laughs> but uh, any he, he uh, because we target him, and to start with, I had this very regular routine. So I'd start off by targeting him near the window, and of course, being a crocodile, he started anticipating that. So as soon as he'd hear us coming up the stairs, if he heard well, ex, you know, there's there's three or four of them, and they've got a bucket, so it's feeding day. So I'm gonna go wait by the window. So I didn't want him anticipating what we were doing. So I'd target him somewhere else. And then he'd go there. And then he'd start waiting there. And then I'd target him by the window. And it took him only two or three times before he figured out that the smartest thing for him to do was to wait halfway between these two target points and just lie on the bottom and wait for me to call him. <laughs> so, so now when we walk in there, if we're walking in at a clean, I don't know what it is. It's obviously the sound of us coming up the stairs is different, or maybe you know what goes on behind the scenes he can hear us and he knows whether we're feeding him or not and if we're not feeding him for going to clean when we walk in there he'll be at the far end of the pool and he's lying on the bottom and ignoring us if it's a feeding day he'll be halfway between the target spots waiting on the bottom and i'll i'll have the guests in the little cage area i'll give a little spiel and then i'll walk over and just go come on as soon as i do that he turns comes up targets and the other cool thing is that if I'm, if I change the target spot and I'm calling him and he's swimming to the wrong spot underwater, 
and I call him when he's halfway halfway across, he'll turn and he'll change directions and come towards me. And most people don't think about it, but I have to explain to them that if, if you are underwater, because the way our ears are, we're adapted for hearing sounds on land and for localizing sounds on land. So a sound hears, hits one ear before it hits the other. And that's why we can tell if it's coming from the right or from the left or from behind us. But underwater, the sound travels so quickly that we can't differentiate. So it sounds like it's directly above us. So anyone that's gone scuba diving knows that if you hear a motorboat, it could be half a kilometer away, but it sounds like it's right above your head. So there's no way in the world that someone could call us and we'd be able to go, oh, they're over there. <laughs> Whereas a crocodile can locate the sound really quickly and just perfectly turn without coming to the surface and know exactly where I am just by my voice. Uh, that's like another difference between the uh, crocodilids and alligatoroids is uh, crocodiles have a lot more uh, integratory sensory organs over all yeah. their body versus the alligatoroids concentration just in the head just on the head yeah and those uh integral those uh, isos also pick up a lot of uh vibrations as well right yeah so they yeah that's mostly what they pick up on uh there's it's oh, yeah, yeah. I was getting mixed up because I, I heard that some of them can uh, do like chemical detection as well. I must. It's suspected, but it hasn't been. I don't think it's been fully verified. But suspected that they they may have chemical cues, which might explain why crocodiles have them and alligators don't because of their environment. But uh, I don't think anyone's positive about that. But definitely vibrations. They, they're really good at that. So uh, you mentioned you do some uh, herping here and there, especially in like, well, you're fortunate to have lace monitors and labs in your backyard to go look at. Yeah, it's funny, my, my herping is really limited. Uh, well, the funny thing is, is that when I moved into this house, we were in the middle of the construction uh, with the zoo. So I just had no spare time at all. I was only coming here, essentially only at home at night anyway. And then we almost immediately after opening the zoo, we almost immediately went into lockdown. It was just a couple of months later that everything just went, you know, went pear, pear shake. And so a lot of the herping I've done has just been around my house. <laughs> and so I've got a lot of species here. There's broad-tailed geckos and uh, water dragons, water skinks, few, quite a few other, other different skinks, blue tongues. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff just around here, which is which are loads of fun. But when I when I get a chance, I do like to go, I do like to go herping. So, as an American, I'm a lot more hands off these days. I don't, I don't, um, I'm no longer a herper that goes out to catch things. I want to photograph things in situ. I'm far more interested in seeing what they're doing naturally than trying to catch them. Yeah. And I've, and I've, that's been for quite a few years now. And I've found that by doing that, I end up getting a lot more interesting observations. Hmm. Yeah. So, as an American who, one of his biggest dreams is eventually go herping in Australia. Yeah. If if you had like if I have one week or two weeks to go herping, what would your be your suggestion of where to go? Oh, ooh. <laughs> I'd probably have to ask what your favorite sorts of animals are because it's. Uh, I mean, it's hard to beat the tropics, and it's hard to beat someplace like. Um, the Cape Kimberley. Yorker. Yeah, Cape York or the Kimberley. Cape York because it's it's 
rainforest, it's harder, but it depends on what you're after. That's 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 what it comes down to is is what sort of things interest you. One of the things I can tell you that's very different from North America and Australia because I've done a lot of done a lot of herping in North America as well as Australia, and North America you tend to see a lot more snakes. Like it, you, there are a lot yeah. of species here, but you you actually there are some areas where you can go where you'll we'll see quite a few snakes, but as a whole. You tend to see a lot more like you see a lot more lizards especially like you know they just lizards but um you really have to do a lot of night driving or, or evening driving to see snakes yeah that's one area north america is really lacking is our uh, lizard diversity yeah here it's crazy especially in uh in the desert areas huge diversity just crazy diversity but even around here like i've i was telling you before so manitoba where I grew up, the whole province had eight species of reptile. And I think I've got, I've probably got about 10 species of just skink around my house. <laughs> That's not including the dragons, the monitors, the geckos, the snakes, everything else. And, but lizards in particular are really diverse. And here they're everywhere. You just walk around and you will constantly see skinks. You'll, you know, if you go out at night, you'll see geckos. It's, yeah, it's very, very diverse. Yeah, my whole state has only four species of lizard. One of those is invasive. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I get yeah, I get lizards inside my house. I get geckos and skinks that come into my house. The the broad-tailed geckos are very cool. They're uh, you're, probably, you're probably familiar with those. I've seen some. I've seen some people like, keep them and like take pictures of them and stuff like that. I'm yeah. not too familiar with them though. Nephro, you know what they look like though the nephros. Yeah. Yeah. So those will um, I, like if I'm coming home for work in, especially in summer. I mean they're active all year round, but they're really particularly active in summer. If I'm coming home from work a little bit later and, and you know, it's dark out, all I have to do is just get out my phone and turn on my phone. And, and on the brick wall between my where my car is parked and my front door, there'll be at least one of those on the wall. <laughs> Which I think is like I, even though I've been here for a long time, I've actually been in Australia almost twice as long as I was in Canada. Um, I still get that buzz about seeing things that yeah. are just really Australian. Yes, yesterday, I put this on Facebook. Yesterday, I was driving home from work, and as I was coming down the hill towards my house, I saw this thing walking up the middle of the road, and it was an echidna. <laughs> and so I pulled over and got my phone out and just got the video. Of this it was a young echidna heading up the hill, and I, that just blows me away. That's a it's a monotreme. This is related to platypus. It's one of the very few egg-laying mammals in the world, and this thing's just walking up the street. And uh, and then I've got camera traps camera uh, trail cams set up on either side of my house and this morning i got up and had a look in one of my plants it's, a, it's called a kangaroo paw funnily enough because the flowers look like little kangaroo paws it's a west australian plant it was about to flower and this morning i looked and thought oh look the flowers are all gone all the flower buds are gone so i pulled the car out of the trail cam and had a look and sure enough there's a big swamp aldi holding this kangaroo paw in his in his, in his paws and eating the flower heads And I, I think it's yeah, it's great. I get a lot. Of, I get a lot of wallabies around here. And I, and I don't. We grow like we grow up with images of kangaroos and wallabies and stuff. But I don't think we appreciate just how weird a lifestyle it is, hopping and carrying your young around in a pouch until you you look at them and watch them for a while, 
it's a it's a very it's really interesting it's a bizarre lifestyle yeah i mean even if they're only a marsupial possums you don't really see them carrying their young around with just the way they hold and they don't really notice it too much yeah and it's quite it's quite a different thing whereas with a kangaroo because we've got we've got uh marsupials that carry their young around the same way that uh, a north american opossum would but uh, like some of the dads of Europe, some of the carnivorous marsupials do but the kangaroo is actually you know it'll, it'll be sitting there and this little head will poke poke out of its pouch or the mother will be foraging and this little head will poke out of the pouch and then the baby will be foraging as well it's just a just a really unusual thing to see and one of the local swamp aldies that that's been foraging on my in my yard has got a pouch young so at some stage i'll probably get some video of it with it with its head out because it's it's hanging down quite low it's at that size you could tell where it's about to start coming out of the pouch so i should get some interesting footage over the next couple of months nice yeah. so uh is there anything else you want to talk about i'm just trying to think what we haven't covered it's <laughs> probably a few th quite a few things we haven't covered that i'll think about later on you got any more like questions? two hours later you're like ah oh, i missed that <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yeah there'll be there'll be heaps of things that we haven't covered yeah just try to think what it is i tell you what though as i as a kid growing up in winnipeg i would have dreamt of being in a place like this you know having you know echidnas and modern lizards in my you know around my house but it's so it's kind of a but i don't i don't know if i'd imagine it actually happening so it's kind of a, there's still part of me that is that kid in winnipeg going wow this is really cool yeah and I, I hope i never lose that i hope i never lose that uh that kind of buzz that i get from seeing cool wildlife here yeah yeah i mean even up here just seeing something that's shaped like a snake or a salamander is just even that alone get me buzzed up a little bit as well as you're saying so yeah. i don't know i probably probably best thing i don't go to australia otherwise my brain would probably overload and be <laughs> fried out laying on a sidewalk twitching i think one of the things too uh, that i found found is that as a herper you get a feeling for where a good spot's going to be to find something so yeah. you'll know oh that rock's going to have something on earth and what i found here is that you just didn't know what you were going to find and it took it took a long while before i started getting a better handle on being able to predict what was going to be under there and so quite often there'd be weird things and, and not necessarily even reptiles sometimes there'd be invertebrates that were just weird that i thought what is that and what is it doing and there, there's been a few things that i've seen that just have blown me away like that which i which i and i love that that's one of the things i love too about traveling to other countries is not knowing what to expect yeah like the the habitat's the same the niche might be the same but the animal filling it's entirely different so uh what was, what was your favorite place you ever uh went herping in then oh well okay so my my, my absolute best herping day ever in my life uh was in australia um but and i'll talk about that in a bit but 
in terms of traveling elsewhere, I, I took a trip to Komodo, uh, oh. and that was for a significant birthday. So it was quite a few years ago. Went with a couple of friends who were into reptiles, and that was one of my favorite trips. I really loved that. So it wasn't just the dragons, it was all sorts of other stuff that we saw. I'm going to put that together into a YouTube video when I finish the monitor series. Um, because it was it was just a really fun trip. It was mm -hmm. it wasn't just the dragons. We saw cobras and um tree vipers and yes, a lot of a lot of really interesting things. Yeah. Uh I've had some fantastic herping experiences in the States. Like I've, I've gone uh, herping in the Everglades with a couple of a uh, couple of biologists that at the time were working on the uh, Burmese python uh, problem. And one of them is now living in California. And the three of us went for a drive through, uh, through Everglades National Park. Uh, and it was just started to rain. And we end up, I think we saw 49 snakes of nine different species which i thought was really cool and i've done i've done some cool herping trips in in texas as well and quite a few in california with sam sweet i don't know if you know professor sam sweet uh unfortunately i do not yeah he's a, a monitor biologist uh and one of one of the weirdest experiences i had was actually looking for salamanders he's also really into his salamanders he's particularly into matraceps and yeah. uh and we went herping for those and i just i just cracked up because it was the most unherping thing that i've ever done to look for a herp because we were standing under pine trees it was really cold wet um like damp <laughs> yeah. damp soil covered in pine needles and using a rake to rake across the surface soil and you see these <laughs> is that a worm no it's got legs that is a salamander that was weird. It was not what I expected. The only that's one of the very few times where I've gone herping, and I, there's no way in the world I would have predicted that. I would have, or wouldn't even have thought to look for them like that. And I imagine that actually would be a good way to look for longless salamanders. But yeah, so now I was going to tell you about my my all time best herping day ever. <laughs> it's something that is not easy to replicate. So when I first arrived in Australia, I'd only been in Australia for around a month when we were going to fly up to the Northern Territory to um, to do some work with crocodiles. Now, the purpose for me going there was I hadn't yet picked a research topic for my PhD. So Gordon was going to introduce me to the field station that we had available to us and just uh, have a look at some wild crocodiles and just get a, a you know, sense of what I can work with and what sort of, you know, have a, have a think about what I wanted to do my project on. And Gordon was a pilot. So we flew up in a little uh, Cessna 172. So it was like a four seater, tiny little plane across Australia. So in terms of distance, we're looking at flights like flying from probably from Florida to North Dakota. So it's kind of quite a big flight. <laughs> and, um, and, and we're going like over the desert. So we'd what we do is we'd fly for a few hours in the morning. When it got too hot, we'd land at some really obscure little outback town. Uh, and then we'd get up at a sparrow's fart and then fly again. And as we got close to the Northern Territory, we got uh, a radio warning that there was a cyclone coming in. So cyclone is the Southern Hemisphere version of a hurricane. And we were told that wherever you are, just go to ground and stay there until this passes. And so we landed at a place called Roper River. So um, we spent a bit of time herping around there and that was really cool. I saw my first 
wild crocodiles, which were freshwater crocodiles, and quite a few other very cool things there. And then we got into the plane and we were flying into Arnhem Land. And Arnhem Land is Arnhem Land is a it's a part of the Northern Territory that's governed by uh, the Aboriginal peoples. So it's a it's kind of like Nunavut is in Canada. And it's an area that very few uh, Europeans can go to. Uh, it, it's you can get you can go there that now as a tourist. They have tours there, but at the time you really you needed permits to go there. You can only go there under certain conditions. And we had a field station there, so we were able to get permits to go there. So it was a very wild place. It was a a, a really really interesting place. And this is before the cane toads had moved in, so the diversity of herps was even greater than it is now. And as we were flying flying into the town of Managuida, we looked down and the water was so high from the cyclone, from all the rain. It was wet season flooding and it was extreme flooding. So the rivers were flooding their banks. And the only way you could tell where the rivers were was this little narrow line of mangrove trees. So just this little line of trees. Otherwise, it was just one broad sheet of water. So Gordon said, look, as soon as we, as soon as we land, we'll get in the boat right away. And we'll head upstream and we'll see if we can find some croc nests uh, that haven't yet drowned as the water level is rising and we'll, we'll get the eggs uh bring them back to the lab and then you know take them back out there they were doing some research on eggs anyway but we're going to take them back out there after the waters had succeeded and subsided and so we got in the boat and we started heading up <laughs> up river and we started seeing some unusual things. So the first thing we saw was a black whip snake or a Papuan whip snake, which is a big venomous, um, famous elapid in the water. So one of the guys said, hey, we'll you know, just pull it to the boat, we'll get some photographs of it. And we saw another one and another one, and then we saw blue tongue, and blue tongues aren't swimmers. You don't normally see them in the water like that. And it hadn't dawned on us that these are all the animals that are being washed off the floodplains into the river. And it wasn't until I saw a little hatchling Varanus syndicus, a mangrove monitor, really tiny hatchling, really young, big polka dots on it. I said, oh, can we go in there? I want to I want to get a photograph of that. So I jumped on the bow of the boat and we very slowly went towards this tree and I grabbed the tree to steady, to st steady ourselves so the boat didn't go crashing into the tree. Yeah. And the boat very lightly bumped the tree and I heard that this pitter-patter that sounded like rain. And I looked down at my feet and the boat was completely covered in spiders and frogs and all sorts of things. And then I went, wait a minute. And I looked at the, we looked at where my hand was holding the tree and there was a lizard right above it and then another lizard and then there was something else. And it was just, the trees were absolutely covered in animals trying to escape the flood. Huh. So we started, we started, boating around and just looking and just there was just everything you wanted to see was in the trees and somebody got this great idea they said if there's this many animals in these mangroves where there's quite a few trees why don't we find a break in the mangroves head across the floodplain and find one of these isolated stands of pandanus which is a really weird i don't know how you describe a pandanus kind of looks like a yucca i guess like a tall yucca but it's not related as far as i know and it and there, there's this isolated stand of pandanus we're going to head towards that and as we got close to it there's a big shadow at the top of the pandanus and what it was it was this giant clump of water pythons 
Because one of the, whoever came up with this idea, they said, look, if if there's that many animals in the trees alongside the river, when you have an isolated clump of trees like this, everything from the floodplain is going to be going to that one clump of trees. And it was just crazy. We were just kind of boating around, and you just you'd find a little, you'd see a little shrub sticking out of the water, and there'd be two blue tongues and a snake or a legless lizard. There'd be the monitor lizards, uh, our version of the Argus, so Rhinus panoptes panoptes. Where um, you know those those on these pandanas, there water pythons, there was everything. Everything was there. So I just got to see so many reptiles in one day, is insane. And I wanted to go back the next day, but we we were busy with things back at the field station, and everyone was pretty sure that the water would stay up for a couple of days. We went up two days later, the water had subsided, and everything was dispersed again. Yeah. So it was one of those really rare things. Um, I think. Peter Harlow had been up to Northern Territory on numerous trips. He said he'd never seen that before or since. Huh. Yeah. It's just a, <laughs> and, and you have to imagine too that I was, I was fresh off the boat from Canada. <laughs> I'd always flown into Australia months before. And this is, this is my introduction to Australian reptiles. <laughs> yeah. Start off thinking if every day is like this, this will be the most awesome experience yeah. my life actually even my first day in australia was pretty crazy because um so peter was working for gordon at the time and i'd stopped in hawaii on my way to australia so when gordon picked me up at the airport i wasn't that tired and he asked me is he tired i went no and he said look you might be interested in this uh, peter's popping by later on he's got a transmitter in a diamond python in one of the little local gullies between a couple of suburban streets he's been following this female diamond python for a while as well as a few others so you might want to go with him. So I thought, fantastic. So he picked me up and we went walking down and kookaburras were calling. This is the sound effect that I'd only ever heard in Tarzan movies. And there were, you know, water dragons by the, you know, by the creek. And we found this diamond python and <laughs> it was just a, it was just an incredible first day. And then that night, that night, I Gordon said, "Oh, look, you know, we're gonna, I'm gonna go visit a friend's place because I've got to pick up something from him." And we go to this guy's place, and, and Gordon said, "Oh, David, this is Hal Cogger." And I said, "Hal, is that short for Harold Cogger?" And he said, "Yes, like Harold Cogger, who wrote the, you know, like it was like the Bible of Australian reptiles and amphibians." And I only knew about this because one of my professors in in Manitoba had loaned me his copy of Cogger's book. And it was like the most complete book of reptiles and amphibians of Australia. And so I, you know, I had this, I borrowed this book from him for a few days. And so here it was my first day in Australia meeting, <laughs> meeting, and meeting Harold Cogger. So I thought it was just a, yeah, it was an incredible first day. Wow. Uh, so, is there any one place uh, or any one species that you want to herp up more than anything else? Like, like kind of like your ultimate lifer location or species? Um, I've got there's there's one left one place left. Uh, like I've been to quite a few places. My my number one, but as a kid, my number one uh, herping destination or like bucket list herping destination was Australia. And my number two was Brazil. And I spent uh, seven weeks in Brazil quite a few years ago, which was an incredible experience as well. 
And I've been to been to Africa. The one place I want to go, there's quite a few species I want to see there, and that is India. Huh. I'd like to see I'd like to see gharials, one of the things I'd like to see, and mugger crocodiles. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to. I wouldn't mind going back to uh, back to Indonesia. I'd like to see Timistama. Ooh. Malaysian gharial. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one right there. Yeah, I've been in the in the right area. I did go. I did go looking for them, but uh, only briefly, and I didn't have. It was on a tour boat, and it was the wrong time of day. So, yeah, I wouldn't mind going back and looking for those. I mean, personally, I'm, I'm personally I'm a big fan of uh, scrub pythons, whole scrub scrub python speciation complex. Yeah, so, yeah. So, like North Queensland and uh, like Timor and New Guinea, yeah, yeah. that that kind of be a cool place for me to, for me personally. Just will love to go around there. Yeah, I'd like to say that the, 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 the scrub pythons in in Queensland in certain areas, uh, I think it's a, one of the gorges. They they gather during the mating season, and, and you get large numbers of really big scrub pythons. Now it'd be pretty cool to see as well. Oh yeah. Definitely gonna try and find out about that. Yeah. I didn't um yeah, I I I'm just trying to think <laughs> I'm trying to think of target species. It's kind of funny because I've I have tried to see as many as many as I as I as I as I can. So I've seen a lot a lot of things I've wanted to see. And I, I'm a big fan of seeing things. Um that I'm really familiar with that I may have kept as a pet when I was a kid or something like that and seen those in the wild, I, I get a buzz out of that. I don't know why that is. Yeah. So uh, so when I went to when I went to Brazil, I went snorkeling in some of the streams that go into the Amazon and seeing a lot of the tropical fish I used to keep was really cool. <laughs> and even going to the fish market and seeing massive versions of them was very, very cool as well. Yeah. I do recommend if you are ever planning to go to South America to go to the Pantanal? That's that's like what that's like way up on my list of South American places to go just to see all the caiman stacked up on each other. Uh, that is unbelievable. My one regret is that this was back in the day of, of slide film. And so I you know I think I'd run out of slide film by the time I got to that area. And so I only have like an old print photographs of those caiman <laughs> and the negatives. And I'd love to go back with a digital camera. Oh yeah, yellow anacondas too. I saw I saw quite a few yellow anacondas, which was very. I thought, yeah, they're a neat animal. Yeah, but the caiman, the, the caimans when they're at their peak and they're, you, you'll see hundreds of them around some of these little billabongs. It's really spectacular thing to see, and they're a really pretty caiman too. The Pantanal caiman, yeah. caiman yapare. Yeah, I always thought they were a lot more attractively patterned than their. Uh kind of generic looking cousin uh crocodilus yeah. yeah the spectacle caimans that you see around manaus though are really interesting or in the rio negro i went so the, uh, the person i was visit visiting in south america is a biologist that i knew that um he's an australian based he's been living in brazil for a really long time and he set me up with some of his former grad students or colleagues that were doing research and so i got a chance to 
go to all these different wild spots in Brazil. And one of them was a an archipelago, a freshwater archipelago called Anavianas that's up the Rio Negro from Manaus. And we their black came in there, pink those pink dolphins, the Botu, and fishing bats and all sorts of really cool things. But the spectacled caimans in that area have a really long, slender snout. Huh. It's further up the river where you get the Apoporo caiman. Oh, the real Apoporo? Yeah, the uh, really skinny snouts. And so these ones are kind of in between a spectacled caiman and one of those, like a normal spectacled caiman and one of those. They are a spectacled caiman, but they had this really interesting head shape because the head shape was almost exactly the same as a uh, saltwater crocodile. Huh. So I and, did it. Sorry, are also those ones also have a lot, of, lot more like a brighter yellow coloration than the kind of these ones are kind of a brownie color. The, the Apoporo is yellow, yellow more yellow, but these the ones around Manaus were, were kind of a brownie color. And but I used I used an image of one of those. I did a video on how to tell an alligator from a crocodile because most people will tell you, well, alligators have broad snouts and crocodiles have narrow snouts. And caimans, being members of the alligator family, they can have anything from a very broad to a very narrow snout. Yeah. And that, that those spectacle caimans you get around Manaus, so I thought it was a classic example of a, an alligator that's got a snout shape exactly like a crocodile. In fact, some researchers in Florida did a study on bite strength. This is at the University of Florida in Gainesville. They did a study on bite strength, and they developed a kind of a, a system for categorizing crocodilian skull shapes based on proportions, length versus width, and everything else. And from, and from memory, uh, this population of spectacled caimans has, has got the same proportions as a saltwater crocodile. Huh. It's kind of a unusual bit of convergent evolution there. Yeah. Trying to figure out what they would be involving similar skull shape for. Oh, it's probably just a probably just a generic like it's a kind of generic head shape for feeding <laughs> i mean whereas you find yeah. that the other the other extremes are the ones that are more specialized the narrower yeah. you get the broader you get those tends to be the more specialized ones where the ones yeah. that are in, in that the classic wedge shape is just your generic head yeah being a bit of everything and yeah, narrow for fish broad for turtles more or less yeah. but yeah I enjoyed seeing, I saw Nile crocodiles in, in South Africa, and I, I really enjoyed seeing a lot of those. I saw them, saw a few of them tearing apart hippo carcass, doing the, the old death roll and everything else. Uh, was, that's, was a bu that's a buckless sight for me, so. Yeah. Africa was funny for me because it was, it was actually wasn't really high up on my list of places to go. I don't know why, probably because it's fam more famous for its big game mammals than for yeah. its reptiles. So I thought, yeah, one day I'll go to Africa, but really there's a whole lot of other places I wanted to go first. Well, Australia and Brazil were the one and two, and then there's one to go to Southeast Asia. It was number three. And uh, you know, so eventually I'll make my way to Africa. So my my biological daughter, her her maternal grandmother was born in Namibia and was schooled in South Africa. And when she turned 80, she wanted to go back there to celebrate her brother and sister are there. And so we all flew over there to celebrate her birthday. 
And the very first day that we were in South Africa, we went on safari. And I was looking at some very ordinary African mammal, I think it was water buck. And I suddenly went, why haven't I been here before? And when can I come back? Because this trip is not going to be long enough. And that first trip, I was there for quite a while. But we were mostly in areas where there weren't any major rivers. So I didn't see any crocodiles or hippos in the wild. So I wanted to go back. And as opportunity had it, there was a crocodile specialist group meeting in Kruger National Park in one of the camps called Skakuza. So the actual conference was in the, in the Kruger. And so I immediately signed up for that. And then I organized every single excursion that I could take while at the conference. So they had morning game drives, they had afternoon game drives, they had game walks, did all that. I booked in a, an excursion after the conference because there was kind of a, you know, a few days where we can do a customized excursion. And then on top of that, I've got some friends. I was going to do it on my own, but some friends wanted to join me. Some friends flew out and I hired a vehicle and I booked accommodation in Kruger in all these bushveld camps. And so we spent 10 days driving from the very southeast corner of the park all the way to the north, northern extreme of the park over the course of 10 days and uh, in a big four wheel drive and just took thousands of photographs. And we just saw everything. We just we saw uh, Nile monitors, so leopards, lions, hyenas, hyenas with cubs, you, you name it, we saw all sorts of really cool things. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And, and now I find that if I'm about to book a trip somewhere, it's really hard for me not to go back to Africa because Africa is a guaranteed bang for buck. If you're into wildlife photography and you want to go anywhere in the world where you're going to be just seeing things every day, Africa is the place to go. You just will see so much stuff. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a really good friend who, uh, uh, he grew up as a missionary's kid in, uh, West Africa. And he was telling me about, you know, growing up there, like the first, one of the first animals he ever caught was a wild Nile modder, which still trying to figure out how his little kid could do that and still be in one piece. Was it West Africa? Did you say? Yeah. I think it was, uh, yeah, it Ghana. It would have been Sukhas, not Nilaticus. That's why. Uh, Nile Monitor. Oh, so Nile Monitor. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was just telling me about all sorts of stuff, you know, I saw growing up there. Like, uh, you said, like, people just kept dwarf crocs, almost like pets, almost down yeah. there, just naturally. It's like, yeah, it's like you just see them in, like, a roadside ditch, more or less, just hanging out there, which I thought was kind of cool just seeing crocodilians that are hanging out basically a little ditch with a little bit of water in it. But... Yeah, yeah. Like Florida with alligators. Yeah. But the, 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 the funny thing is that my second trip to Africa, my target species, I mean, there was a whole lot of stuff I wanted to see. I wanted to, I didn't see many hyenas the first trip. I really wanted to get a closer look at hyenas and stuff like that. But really, my two big target species uh, both had Nilodicus as a scientific name, epithet. So it was Crocodilus Nilodicus and Varanus uh, Nilodicus. Yeah. And and, and on, I think the, the, the very first time I saw one of them, I saw both of them. <laughs> and so I've got this <laughs> photograph with a crocodile in the background and a, and a Nile monitor in the foreground. and got them both in the, in the one shot. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Nile monitor is a beautiful 
looking lizard. They are. They are a nice looking lizard. I think they're underappreciated. Yeah. I think part of that is just because U.S. pet trade, they're kind of viewed as a cheap import and also the yeah. one with a super foul temperament, yeah. which, I mean, it's a cheap imp it's a cheap import. What do you expect his temperament to be? But Yeah. Yeah, I know seeing, I think I probably saw about five of them. And I saw a couple of the uh, Albigularis as well. Hmm. And, so, and, the, and the two Albigularis I saw were very different from each other because one of them was your classic South African, uh, you know, kind of like a Cape Banded sort of thing. And the other one was in Namibia. And the one in Namibia was in, it was just near Atosha National Park. I think it was in Damaraland. And it was um, almost patternless. It was, in fact, it was pretty much patternless. It was kind of a sandy color with kind of black speckles around its nose because it was living huh. in an area that's almost completely arid. Huh. Yeah. That's I think I, it was one of the very few times because most of the time, I've been in Africa. I've tried to do as much self-drive as possible. Try to do self-drive safaris. I'm not a huge fan of going on safaris with other people. Yeah. But at the time, we were we were on a on a um, on a guided safari because we were going to see the desert elephants in Damaraland. And so it's something you, you can't really do on your on a self-drive. And the funny thing was, is we were heading back towards camp, and because I'm so used to seeing monitor lizards. And I didn't. I don't think I even had my glasses on, but I just saw this thing, and it was just this blur crossing the road. It was, it was probably about, oh, it would have been half a kilometer away. I just saw this blur walking across the road, and I just went, oh, can we go and have a look at the monitor lizard? And the animal spotter and driver just looked at me and said, how do you know that's a monitor lizard? And I said, I can just tell by the way it's moving. And uh, so we drove up, and sure enough, it was a monitor lizard. So, <laughs> They're kind of impressed, which is <laughs> funny because I just, I just had a, I couldn't see any details. I could just see this smudge, this dark smudge moving across a light road, but just the way it moved, I knew it was a monitor lizard. Yeah, small flex right there. Is that right? Small flex right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, um, yeah, I still got some photographs of that. So it's very cool. Well, we've been going at it for about two and a quarter hours now. So okay. that's a long podcast. People will fall asleep by now. <laughs> All right. So I guess we'll uh, call it wraps for now. But uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really did enjoy uh, talking to you. Thank you, Nate. I enjoyed it too. Well, hope to talk to you some other time. Sounds good. Okay. Take care. You too.